Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The COVID-19 pandemic is the gift, or the curse, that just keeps on giving, at least in terms of ethical challenges. In the spring of 2020, the ethical challenge was rationing care, in particular ventilators. In the summer of 2020, it was the use of abortion-derived cell lines in the development, production, and or testing of COVID-19 vaccines. In the winter of 2021, it became, can Catholics in good conscience accept a COVID-19 vaccine? And today, the ethical challenge is institutions, including Catholic institutions, mandating that people receive a COVID-19 vaccine. This final challenge is especially relevant for colleges and universities as they will begin their fall semester classes in just a few short weeks. On July 2nd, the NCBC released a brief document titled NCBC Statement on COVID-19 Vaccine Mandates. It's available on our homepage, ncbcenter.org. Please scroll down to the section, Important Recent Postings. Today, I am joined by my NCBC colleague, John DiCamillo, to discuss what this new resource contains and how people may apply it. John DiCamillo, welcome back to Bioethics On Air. Hey, thanks, Joe. Good to be here again. Love having you on the show. So, John, you've been on a few times so we can dispense with the background and everything else because if people should know you by now, and if they don't, they can go back and listen to a previous podcast where you tell us your life's history. But <laughs> as we begin our, our podcast today, can you give us some background to this new NCBC statement on COVID-19 vaccine mandates? Why did we write it? Sure. So basically, I mean, it's, as everybody knows, this whole vaccine issue has been out for quite some time now. We were even thinking about it, you know, before the first emergency use authorizations came out in December of 2020. Um, and, and of course, initially it was being targeted to those who were in the most vulnerable populations. Um, and I think that, you know, as the COVID-19 vaccines became available increasingly to uh, populations that were at lower risk of the disease itself, um, and as we were starting to get an influx of consultation questions about oh, yeah. all these sorts of issues, um, and and we've talked about this in previous podcasts and have resources on that as well for what those various moral issues are, whether it's abortion-derived cell lines or um, uh, other sorts of uh, issues uh, related to factors to consider um, when deciding about a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, we basically came to a point here where we were starting to see the shift from not just this is available uh, to people in certain groups to now some employers, businesses and others are actually starting to mandate the use of it. And as that shift was happening, naturally, we're getting more questions about that in our consultation service. Um, and it became increasingly clear to us that we really needed to say something um, for the general public to offer resource and clarification uh, with regard to church teaching and with regard to uh, how we see that applying uh, to these questions about whether or not uh, an employer or uh, other uh, institution should mandate uh, the use of a COVID-19 vaccine uh, for their employees or for students or otherwise. Yeah, I can certainly uh, attest to the fact that we're getting those questions on our consultation service. I'm on consult duty today and, and we're getting those questions from, from individuals. So yeah, 
Certainly an ongoing question. Yeah. So what I'd like to do in this podcast is do something a little different than we've done on on previous ones. I'm actually going to read the document. I'm not going to read the whole thing through right away, but I'm going to read sections of the document. And then John is going to comment on and uh, tell us what it means and how we can apply it. Does that sound good, John? Sure. All right. So let's start. I'm going to read the, the introduction, and it's three short paragraphs. NCBC statement on COVID-19 vaccine mandates. The National Catholic Bioethics Center does not endorse mandated COVID-19 immunization with any of the three vaccines that have received emergency use authorization as of July 1st, 2021 from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The most authoritative guidance from the Catholic Church issued on this topic comes from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And this is there. We're, we're going to be referencing the December 2020 note on the morality of using some anti-COVID-19 vaccines. So this CDF statement emphasizes that individuals must discern whether to be vaccinated or not in conscience and without coercion. And then we, um, we cite uh, chapter, excuse me, uh, paragraph uh, number five from the CDF document. And paragraph five says this, quote, practical reason makes evident that vaccination is not, as a rule, a moral obligation, and that therefore it must be voluntary. In any case, from the ethical point of view, the morality of vaccination depends not only on the duty to protect one's own health, but also on the duty to pursue the common good. In the absence of other means to stop or even prevent the epidemic, the common good may recommend vaccination especially to protect the weakest and most exposed. Those who, those who, however, for reasons of conscience, refuse vaccines produced with cell lines from aborted fetuses, must do their utmost to avoid, by other prophylactic means and appropriate behavior, becoming vehicles for the transmission of the infectious agent, unquote. John, there was quite a bit there. Um, <laughs> un- unpack that, if you could, for us. Sure. Well, I think that the, the number one point that's being stressed here in the introduction uh, is that really when it comes down to it, as the CDF said in that 2020 note in December, um, there is not a universal obligation to vaccination. Uh, and, and I think that particularly within Catholic circles, that's one of those questions about Catholic moral teaching that we've been kind of running into where there seems to be at times confusion. Um, you know, certainly many um Many leaders within the church and others have been emphasizing the importance of acts of charity, considering our neighbor and so forth, which is absolutely a part of the decision making process for whether or not to receive uh, a COVID-19 vaccine. And um, that that needs to be kept in mind and considered. Uh, However, it is not the case that there is some universal moral obligation to be vaccinated. Rather, as the CDF points out, this is in principle something that must be voluntary, as any medical intervention would um, need to be. And so with that in mind, though one should be considering and weighing the uh, integral good of oneself, of one's uh, those around oneself, uh, one's other duties and obligations within their work environment or their vocation and otherwise, and certainly also with regard to their neighbors, they should not be um, under this this perception that there's uh, an automatic universal duty that's being imposed to receive a vaccine. The the judgment in conscience remains 
uh, for the individual to determine whether or not that vaccine is in fact an appropriate medical intervention in their case. So I think that's the overall takeaway. You know, we, we want to be able to emphasize citing from that authoritative church teaching um, that, you know, going into this series of points that we're going to consider here on Mac of COVID-19 vaccine mandates, that's the, the basic initial premise that this is not a universal moral obligation. Um, and it is, in fact, a decision in conscience for the individual. Right. So how then can institutions, and in particular Catholic institutions, because that's kind of what we're focusing on here, how can they say that there is an obligation to, to get a vaccine? Because we're hearing that through our consult line from people who are, who are talking to, well, I mean, let's get right down to it. It's Catholic colleges and universities that are telling them that. Right. So it's an interesting, there's an interesting distinction here, <laughs> um, first of all, which is whether an individual has an obligation to get the vaccine, that may or may not be the case because the discernment of an individual's obligation, the positive duty to go ahead and perform a specific kind of action um, may or may not obtain. And that is something that's going to ultimately come down to the individual's conscience. Now, when a university is deciding or an institution is saying that they're going to mandate a vaccine, if that's the approach that they're going to take, or if they're otherwise going to encourage it, they're making their own assessment, in fact, as an institution, their institutional conscience, as it were, uh, is being invoked. And they're saying, well, in our judgment, you know, this is something that everybody should do to secure the good of this whole community of people who come to this workplace or otherwise connected to this institution and in some kind of uh, role where, you know, their presence or their interaction is going to increase the risks of serious disease or harm to others in such a way that that's unacceptable um, uh, for us as an institution and, and our responsibility to look out for or safeguard the good of the group. Um, so, you know, you have the two different uh, perspectives, the public health sort of perspective, let's call it, or the institution's perspective of, you know, we would really like to make sure that we're protecting, doing our utmost to protect the community. And that's our assessment and conscience of benefits and burdens associated with the, the, the uh, vaccination and the disease itself and how serious its risks are uh, in our particular institution's situation. Um, and then on the other hand, you have that individual person who may be the employee or who may be a student or otherwise who's saying, well, what about my specific case for me as a person and where do I see myself, you know, fitting into that? Um, so, so we have this kind of intersection, um, which unfortunately, uh, I mean, of course, as our statement is, is getting at, you know, we, we don't really think that a mandate is an appropriate tool at this point in time in any case for COVID-19 vaccines. Um, because it's sort of imposing unjust constraints on the individual's conscience assessment at this time, um, whereas, you know, that, that, that kind of tool is not going to be helpful to what I would call a broader perspective of the common good, which includes elements like trust and elements like cohesion of a community um, and other dimensions of human interaction. Um, and in fact, the fundamental good of respecting the dignity of the individual, which, uh, which does need to be preserved, I think. So to be jumping to mandates at this point is getting a bit ahead of ourselves, even though it may be motivated by the good intentions of trying to uh, secure what the institution sees as the good of its people. Yeah, yeah, very well stated. And as I was, as I was very badly reading section five here from the, uh, from the CDF statement, something struck me and it was really in the, the last sentence. And, I, and I'm thinking about this in terms of, because we're hearing from people, and I, I'm going to assume you have too, 
um, people are are applying for an exemption to receiving a COVID nineteen vaccine, and they're being turned down. And they're saying you can't, you know, you, you can't use um, a, a, an argument from conscience. And I'm just looking at this last or this third uh, sentence, the last sentence from from section five of the CDF statement, and it says this: It says those who, however, for reasons of conscience, refuse vaccines produced with cell lines from aborted fetuses must do their utmost to avoid by other prophylactic means and appropriate behavior from becoming vehicles for the transmission of the infectious agent. At the beginning of that sentence, it, it, it sounds as if the CDF is expecting um, that there are going to be people who are going to, uh, to object to this by reasons of conscience, and they're actually acknowledging that. Is that uh, am I wrong in that reading? I would agree with that, Joe. I mean, I, I think that, you know, when you say you're, you're admitting in the beginning of the statement there, those who for reasons of conscience refuse it, um, you know, after having discussed the fact that it's not a moral obligation universally and that right. it must be voluntary. Um, and given the church's general teaching on conscience as the um, as, as the primary reference point for our practical actions, we have a duty to inform our conscience that it's properly trained. We also have a duty to follow our conscience uh, when we have done our due diligence in in properly forming it. And so individuals, you know, clearly the document is admitting that individuals may come to an assessment in conscience that um, that they should decline the vaccine. And if that is the case, they're going to refuse it on the grounds that their conscience has judged this not to be appropriate for them. And so therefore, you're going to end up with individuals, the, the church is saying, who, for reasons of conscience, may in fact decline the vaccine. Right. And just to be clear, um, because we've heard this as well too, a Catholic couldn't make the argument to to re to request a, an exemption based on the fact that church the church teaches that we shouldn't get a vaccine because the church does not teach that it's not a a religious exemption so to speak, but a person could, as you just described, make um, a a claim of conscience that um, they shouldn't be receiving this vaccine. Or yeah, they sh they shouldn't be forced to receive this vaccine, let's put it that way. Correct, yeah, but there are some some delicate uh, distinctions here, some nuances okay. that get into the, um, the legal definitions of religious exemptions, right. for example. Right. Um, you know, and I think that we have to be careful not to um, you know, presumed to offer definitions of religious exemptions <laughs> that may or may not actually be what a particular state or a particular institution has defined as fitting within their definition of a religious exemption, uh, you know, and leave those to, to legal <laughs> assessments. Um, but what I think we can say for sure, though, I think this is what you're getting at, we can say for sure that a Catholic would not be able to claim that the church categorically prohibits the use of any vaccine. And certainly uh, in this particular case, we can't say that the church prohibits categorically the use of COVID-19 vaccines on the grounds that they have been used for, I'm sorry, that they have been developed through the use of abortion-derived cell lines. Because that's, of course, one of the major moral issues we've discussed in the past is that naturally yep. um, and rightfully many Catholics will be uh, upset with this fact that <laughs> the, the research, scientific research, um, industry, the pharmaceutical industry is developing these drugs. Um, and the way that they're doing it is relying upon abortion derived cell lines um, in in the manufacturing or the development and or the testing uh, in order to get these vaccines available. Um, and so that is a big moral problem. 
And that is something that people may have serious objections to. Uh, but the church has taught, and this brings us back to the point, the church has taught that it may be legitimate nonetheless to utilize the vaccine as an end user if you have that proportionately serious reason to do so, such as being particularly vulnerable and, you know, a, a variety of other reasons, including perhaps wanting to contribute to the, the limitation of the spread of the disease when there are no other alternative means of doing so. So long story short is within Catholic moral teaching, there is a place for people to legitimately use the vaccines in spite of that connection. Um, but that being said, um, you know, it, it still may be the case that an individual Catholic would want to oppose or refuse the use of the vaccines on the grounds that in his or her conscience, they are saying, no, I, I don't want to be involved with this um, as a witness to the dignity of unborn life and, and otherwise, and, and as part of a maybe a bigger effort to try to uh, discourage or to stop the use of these cell lines in the broader pharmaceutical industry. Um, and, and so there's a place to accept or to refuse within Catholic Church teachings. So the Catholic can't say, oh, my church requires me categorically to refuse the vaccine. That's kind of the bringing us back to the long story short. We can't say that on the grounds of uh, Catholic Church teaching, um, I am required uh, universally or categorically to uh, refuse this vaccine. That's simply not the case. All right, so let's move back to uh, the NCBC statement, and now we're, we're moving into what we are stating. So, several key points should be kept in mind in any institution that might consider incentivizing or requiring the use of COVID-19 vaccines currently available in the USA. So we have five points that we make. Here's point number one. The church has consistently pointed out the ethical problems with vaccines produced and or tested using abortion-derived cell lines. The church has judged it is permissible for people to either accept under protest or reject the use of such vaccines. John, you just talked about that. In other words, there is no universal moral obligation to accept or refuse them, and it should be a voluntary decision of the individual. Catholic institutions in particular should respect the decisions of people to decline use of vaccines dependent on abortion-derived cell lines. This is especially relevant when there are other means of mitigating risk. John, your comments on point number one. Sure. Yeah, we were just, of course, talking about that in, in a little bit before. I guess what I would pull out here is the fact that... Um, this this point number one ends particularly with a call to Catholic institutions um, saying that there should be a, a particular attention on the part of Catholic institutions to those individuals who might want to refuse uh, the use of these vaccines, um, perhaps on the basis of the connection to an abortion-derived cell line. Uh, and so that's a kind of rationale that may not necessarily be uh, so clear cut for other institutions, but it would certainly put the the church and Catholic institutions in a strange position to be saying that uh, we are going to mandate you to use these vaccines uh, when the church actually allows you to use them in her authoritative teaching, despite that connection with the abortion derived cell lines. But but actually, when we get down to it, the church's teaching is that. The, the, the general rule or the general approach should be first to refuse the vaccines developed using abortion-derived cell lines and then 
by exception, it may be permissible to make use of them under those sufficiently serious reasons that we talked about. So again, it would be kind of, it, it's kind of a strange situation to say then, okay, well, we as a Catholic organization are going to categorically require everybody who comes here to get this vaccine that was developed using abortion-derived cell lines um, when, yes, the church allows it, but now we're going to go a step further and require it of you. So it just creates a, a bit of a perhaps mixed messaging on the part of the Catholic institution where they may want to be particularly attentive to uh, allowing that kind of um, liberty in conscience for Catholics, especially and others who would be opposed to um, abortion and the use of abortion derived cell lines in research to be able to say, no, we don't want to, we don't want to use these vaccines. Key point number two. The best ethical decision-making occurs when individuals have, one, sufficient information for discernment, and two, are able to reflect without undue external pressures placed on them. Mandates, by their very nature, exert pressure that can be severe if employment or the ability to further one's education are threatened. Indeed, it would be a radical departure from past practice to impose a mandate involving an unapproved vaccine available only under emergency use authorization. A couple of things going on there, John. Um, again, your comments. So initially, I would say, uh, you know, the first part of that uh, point number two is talking about sufficient information and undue pressure. So sufficient information is obviously an, a, a fundamental part of informed consent. For any kind of medical decision, and certainly when we're dealing with technologies that are fairly new, uh, such as the mRNA technologies and the adenovirus uh, technologies, what we would call genetic vaccines, um, which is what we're dealing with here. And you know, you you have these these new technologies being used, and you want to make sure that people have sufficient information about what the risks are, what the unknowns are, what the benefits may be. Um, and I think that in the situation we're in right now, as most people are probably aware of by this point, reliable and trustworthy information is something that is at a bit of a premium. <laughs> I think that's um, an understatement. Trying right. To be honest with you. <laughs> Try, trying to put it nicely, right? Um, so, yeah, having sufficient information for discernment for your, your decision about whether to get a vaccine. I mean, there's a big question mark there about whether we actually have um, through the various uh, information providing sources that are out there, whether we actually have sufficient information to make a reliable ethical decision. Um, and so that's the first thing. I mean, we have questions about does everybody have sufficient information? If they want more information, are they able to get that additional information? Um, and second, and secondly, of course, if in this mix of uh, difficult, unreliable, perhaps untrustworthy information at times, we throw in mandates <laughs> or other kinds of external pressures where, oh yeah, and if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. Or, oh yeah, and if you don't do this, you can't finish your degree at your university that you've spent lots of time, effort, and resources in, and you've gone through, you know, you won't be able to do this unless you get this vaccine. So now in into a pot of mixed information um, for someone who may be, uh, let's say, at a low, in a lower risk profile for the disease itself, um, where questions remain about long-term effects, perhaps of the disease of the vaccination and, and other sorts of um, unknowns. Now we're going to also add in a pressure to move you in the direction of getting it 
while you haven't resolved some of those basic questions you may rightfully have. So that's a, a serious problem that removes the ability to make sound and clear ethical decisions from the individual. Um, and, and of course, that's what the statement is going on to say, that mandates by their nature exert this kind of serious pressure. Um, and then it goes on to just specify that, you know, well, <laughs> in light of this, let's just take as a very basic point, apart from all the questions about the data that may or may not be out there, about, you know, the motives that may or may not be behind some of what's going on here. If we just look at what is the actual regulatory status of the vaccine, uh, these vaccines are available under emergency use authorizations. Uh, the earliest ones were available to us in December 2020. Um, and then we had in uh, February of 2021, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine became available. So now we have three, uh, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. And so none of these have even been out for more than a year. Um, you know, we're looking at basically eight months at most uh, for two of them. And the, the process for those emergency use authorizations, uh, they, they have met the safety and efficacy standards required for an emergency use authorization, but that's not an approval. You know, how many people are even aware uh, when I pull an audience, you know, it's, it's usually <laughs> not too surprising that many people are under the impression that we have FDA approved vaccines, which we don't. And, and the fact sheets explicitly state that these are unapproved vaccines. Um, they are authorized under an emergency use, which has a series of conditions in order to, to get there, including that there has to be a declared state of emergency uh, in order to even get to the possibility of having emergency use authorization. And, um, you know, all of these are still under their phase three trials. Usually you have four phases. You have phase one, phase two, phase three. And then after phase three is typically when approval comes from the FDA regulatory process side. And then you're in phase four, which is the observational phase where it's out in the general population and it can be marketed, it's licensed, et cetera. So once you, once you get a, a standard approval, then your product is able to be licensed and you're able to sell it and, and you know, commercialize it and you're able to uh, just track the data observationally to see if any new adverse events pop up. Well, here we are where we still have phase three trials going on. Uh, they were not finished. They only had two months of data and, it and they have um, slated about two years of follow-up. Um, and so those phase three trials are ongoing while it's already also now in phase four for the rest of the population. So uh, so there's this 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 very basic fact that most people don't know or understand, which I think, you know, really would sway uh, and can sway the way that you, an individual would think about whether or not I want to do this, because I just didn't realize maybe that this is the, the place where we are in the scientific research process. And, the um, you know, I think as we've also been seeing, there's a rightfully and understandably, an increasing number of uh, adverse events that are being discovered and reported and added to the fact sheets so that people are aware of them um, as we're going along here, which are just reminders of the fact that this is something that came out very, very quickly. Uh, as much as the technology itself enabled certain aspects of the research and development to move much faster than standard vaccine development, on the other hand, um, we also have, you know, sort of uh, shortened. We've combined phases uh, in the research instead of doing them sequentially and other modifications to the process that happened to enable this to come out quicker. Um, so I think, you know, your average uh, reasonable person could well say, oh, you know what? Hey, that's great. Glad it was able to get out quickly, particularly for people who really need it. But maybe I'm going to wait <laughs> if I'm not at high risk. You know, someone might reasonably say that. Um, and so, so yeah, so we're, we're making that point there that it's certainly a radical departure 
for even just historically speaking for any mandate of a vaccine that's only available under an emergency use authorization to to be happening at this time. Uh, it certainly will be shifted at some point in the not too distant future to a full approval. Um, but but certainly here we are with just the authorization status and to be mandating that is is rather unprecedented at this time. Yeah. As you were speaking, I was uh, I kind of went back to you know moral theology 101 class because I like to make things simple for myself. That's how I understand best. But um, you know, going back, it's in order to be, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, in order to be responsible for an act, we have to have sufficient knowledge and sufficient freedom. And it would seem to me that what you're saying is that certainly our knowledge is, well, you can make an argument that our knowledge is may not be sufficient um, to, make a, to make a good informed decision about a COVID-19 vaccine. But certainly it, it would seem to me that these mandates are undermining freedom as you said. So it, it almost seems in some ways that the basic tenets of being able to make a good moral decision are at best being threatened by the mandate. What do you, what do you, yeah, your comment I, I, I think that? that's right, Joe. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and, you know, in particular, I, I often think of, you know, we're sitting here talking about this and, you know, we're, we work for an ethics organization. We talk about, you know, principles and all of these factors to think about and the scientific data and this, that, and the other thing. And believe um, me, we do talk yeah. a lot. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes but, you know, too I, much, I think. But right. Yeah. That's a whole other issue. That's exactly. Yeah, we won't go down that road. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, I think, look, my grandfather was an immigrant to this country. And he worked a lot of jobs, including in the industrial uh, factory settings. Um, I can assure you, if somebody had said to him at that time, you need to get some vaccine to keep working here or you're going to lose your job. Well, you better bet he's going to get that vaccine without even thinking about it. That's not informed consent. Zero. And so I think about, of course, the situation we're in today, how many people, you know, laborers, uh, people who are immigrants who are, you know, trying to work multiple jobs, maybe just to maintain their families or um, or it's their sole source of income wherever they're working. And, you know, yeah, it would be lovely for them to be able to think about, oh, yeah, you know, should I really get this? Is this actually going to help me? Is are there dangers to my health? What might happen in the long term? Those thoughts aren't crossing their minds as soon as you say this is required or you're going to lose your job. And that to me is a grave injustice. And I think it speaks to also what you're saying in terms of the loss of freedom. It's like, oh, uh, yeah. And who of all people doesn't get to this side? The vulnerable mm -hmm. people who depend upon their work or, again, trying to make it through with their studies. Uh, you know, somebody's trying to climb just like in my own family history. You know, it's like, well, we went from immigrant laborers to going through university, getting education with my parents. And then, you know, I'm able to get an education because of the hard work my parents did. And so somebody's trying to climb that ladder to become, you know, the, the first person in their family to go through university. And here you go. You're required to get your vaccine to get through university. What happens to that person's informed consent? <laughs> you better believe they're going to get it. You know, right. so this is now I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad thing to get the vaccine. I want to be right. clear, you know, right. it, it could certainly be, and maybe that person wants to get the vaccine too. That's all well and good. It's a matter of principle about whether or not it's appropriate to constrain somebody's freedom in that kind of way um, in the situation that we're in, where they're not even able to make their own determination about how it may impact their own health or their family's health or their community. Because, you know, with any of these things, especially with... Uh, a novel medical uh, intervention that's available now, 
there are always risks. I mean, there are serious adverse events that do happen to certain numbers of people. Uh, we've certainly been seeing it, speaking about university populations and young adult males. That was one of the more recent uh, additions where we had the clarification that, yeah, it does actually seem like there's a connection between myocarditis and other, you know, heart inflammation that's happening in, um, in young uh, males. So, you know, that's that's your university age, <laughs> more yep. or less, you know, so, and, and could there be more serious consequences? Could death occur in rare cases? It could occur in rare cases, you know, and so that that's something that it just, you know, it seems to me, again, to be constraining someone in such a way that they wouldn't even consider any of that because it's like, well, look, I just I got to take my, you know, take my shot at it because this is the only thing I can do. It's the only option I have um, is, is, is a rather serious injustice. I think when there's still so many unknowns. Very well said. Okay. Point number three from the NCBC statement, the novelty of the SARS CoV-2 and of the technologies for eliciting an immune response to prevent or mitigate COVID-19 leaves several medical questions unanswered. Only time and careful study of the virus and benefits and adverse effects of the vaccines will provide the answers many persons need to give free and informed consent. John, your comments. Yeah, that's perfect because we were just chatting about that at the end of point number two. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's it's this it's very same point about look, um, these are novel technologies. There's still many things that that we don't know. While we do have evidence of the fact that there are reductions in um, the prevalence of COVID-19 in populations that are getting the vaccination, we certainly don't have you know medium-term or long-term data about the uh, adverse events. Um, you know, we only have the, the see the data going back to roughly October 2020 for the long-term follow-up for the clinical trials. Um, and so, you know, as with mostly any other drug that comes out of the market, I mean, there have been plenty of drugs that have come out on the market and have been pulled from the market because of right. problems later discovered. And that's even after full approval. Um, so, you know, there are just, there are plenty of things that we still just don't know. And we have experts out there who are on, um, you know, different sides of this issue, let's say, but, uh, I guess I'd, I'd rather say that we have experts out there exploring the data and coming to different conclusions at this time and reputable experts uh, coming to different conclusions at this time. Um, and so I do think that it is all the more reason why um, we need to be granting the maximum uh, space for individual consent uh, when we really don't have, simply don't have ha enough time and quality data uh, to be able to say with certainty um, the the number or extent of adverse events that may be connected with these vaccines, or even the full extent of the benefits of the disease of the vaccines in some cases. I mean, just for example, one of the points that's been repeatedly brought up is the fact that we don't know for sure the extent to which it prevents transmission of the virus, because that was not right. part of the yeah. um, the clinical trial design. So we know that it prevents the manifestation of the disease. Um, you know, so you have a reduction in the number of people with uh, symptomatic COVID-19 among those who have been vaccinated. Um, but that doesn't actually tell us with certainty the amount of uh, viral transmission that's being stopped. Um, so we don't know, you know, there's the, the whole 
uh, asymptomatic carrier kind of concept, which is uh, part of the reason why initially many of the face covering requirements and so forth were not removed for those who were vaccinated because uh, there was still, we still just don't have the clarity that the disease, uh, that the virus rather, is not being transmitted, right? The distinction between virus and disease being that the disease is the clinical manifestation of symptoms, whereas the virus it may be may or may not be present, may or may not be replicating, but if you're not symptomatic, then you don't have the disease. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing that hits me about this uh, point number three is, is really the last word, that, or the, the last phrase, I should say, that persons need to give free and informed consent. And as, as you and I, and I'm sure our listeners know, informed consent really is one of the foundational principles of, of healthcare ethics. Um, you know, people need to, to give consent to, to receive or to refuse an intervention, but that, that consent needs to be informed. And, you know, all of the things that you just mentioned, the medical, um, on the medical side, and, and then on the, you know, the mandates as well, seems to mitigate, uh, excuse me, seems to militate against true informed consent. Yeah, and actually, as you're as you're saying that, Joe, you're also <laughs> reminding me another of another major point, which is often easy to forget about in the discussion of vaccines, because there's so much focus on the vaccines themselves and what they do or don't do, um, what the risks are or are not, what the benefits and adverse events may be, that we actually forget one of the fundamental components of informed consent is also uh, alternative treatments. Mm, right? What right. are what are my other yeah. options? <laughs> yeah, good point. You know, that's like the basics of informed consent for any medical intervention is you need to know, you know, not just well what benefits does this offer, what risks that does it entail, but also what are my other options? You know, what what happens if I do nothing? First of all, and what uh, what other medical interventions might there be that would help me, and what would those offer me um, uh, apart from the vaccine? And I think this is part of the the information. Um, uh, the, the, the limited information uh, that's been out there has been so you know hyper-focused on the vaccine that we have uh, lost sight of what may be some reliable and helpful interventions to actually treat COVID-19. Um, right. and, and so I'm thinking, for example, there are various groups out there, various reputable medical experts um, and practicing clinicians who have been treating it uh, since it first happened back in April of 2020. Uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Peter McCullough uh, in Texas, a cardiologist and an epidemiologist and a professor of medicine down there who you know, was one of a, a co-author on, on a study that put out a protocol for treating COVID-19, not in hospitals, but in early um, outpatient protocols, which has been the huge, huge gap in in the medical response up to this point. Um, You know, there's been a lot of focus on how to treat in hospitals, um, but there hasn't been a lot of focus on or writing about or publicity about how can you treat it at home? How do you treat it in primary care settings uh, in, in the early stages? Um, and there have been lots of successes. I'm thinking also of a Dr. Zelenko, of Vladimir Zelenko developed the Zelenko, what's called the Zelenko protocol, which is another protocol right. um, yep. for treating early uh, COVID or preventing even COVID. Um, and you also have a group called the uh, Frontline Critical Care uh, Alliance, I, I believe, is the name of the group, and they now have four different protocols out um, that they've been using for for quite some time and have published about. This is a group of at least six, I think, um, critical care physicians um, who are all uh, well published, you know, well respected in their fields, 
Um, and, and they have different protocols for in-hospital, for early preventive intervention, for long-haul COVID. I mean, there are all sorts of things. And, and all of these protocols utilize FDA-approved medications. And they may be off-label uses. But the fact is, there may be options out there that are quite good <laughs> yep. um, and that don't require you to get a vaccine in that sense or that offer um, fewer risks than the vaccine, uh, or rather, even at a minimum, we could say fewer unknowns. Um, and particularly, again, if you're not in a high risk category to begin with, and you know that you may have some alternative treatments out there that you can start doing now preventively, or that you could begin if you started to have symptoms, um, or, you know, even if you did end up in the hospital, that there would be ways that you might be treated. So these are things that an individual would rightly need to consider from an informed consent standpoint um, before deciding about a vaccination, uh, because that's, you know, part of uh, part of the picture. Um, so, yeah. All right. Point number four from the NCBC statement. If any institution mandates COVID-19 vaccination, the NCBC strongly urges robust, transparent, and readily accessible exemptions for medical, religious, and conscience reasons. Safeguarding the appropriate judgment of conscience of all individuals affiliated with the institution helps establish trust and avoid undue pressure during the important and personal process of deciding about appropriate medical care and serving the common good. John, your comments. So here you notice the, the big if, of course, <laughs> right? So if an institution <laughs> right. mandates, because of course the whole statement is about the fact that they shouldn't be mandating them. We, we, are, we are not supporting mandates of COVID-19 vaccinations, but uh, the idea here with number four was to say that since we already know that lots of places are mandating them right. <laughs> and, yep. and even though we, you know, do not support that, uh, we're also aware that our little statement isn't going to make them change their policy, probably. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it would be but, nice, but. right. <laughs> but should they do that um, and they really want to use the, that that mandate tool, let's call it, um, we're insisting here that there have to be robust exemptions, you know, uh, medical, of course, which everyone for the most part is, is doing anyway, because obviously if you've gotten an allergic reaction to a vaccine, you shouldn't get it. Um, but also religious and conscience. And in other words, what we're, what we're basically saying here is if you're going to mandate it, you should uh, make sure that it actually doesn't amount to a coercive mandate that's forcing everybody to do it against their will, but that is offering a way, you know, in, in effect, what we're saying is your mandate should be merely an incentive and not a, uh, a coercive, um, you know, measure that's going to force people to lose their, uh, their, their voluntary uh, ability to decide. So if somebody is really thinking about this and is really concerned about this and says, oh my goodness, I don't think this is the right thing for me, um, they have a clear and transparent way of saying, okay, I can opt out of this. So it's basically, you know, your mandate should be more of an opt out situation where it's easy to opt out if you want to <laughs> for, right. for any reason, including just conscience um, based on your own assessment of the, the benefits and burdens of, of getting a vaccine. Um, and so that, you know, in the end, the mandate will essentially amount to a strong incentive, um, but not uh, something that's, that's going to forcibly override the conscience judgments of the individual. Yeah. Would you say, John, that 
maybe a better word instead of a mandate that institutions could recommend or prudential, prudentially recommend something like that, getting a, uh, excuse me, getting a, getting a vaccine rather than saying mandate? Well, I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I talk about it in terms of a terminology question. I, I would say, I mean, a mandate is a mandate. If you're requiring it, you're requiring it. Um, and then you're, you may or may not allow exceptions to that requirement. I guess I I'm just that, asking that if yeah. you're mandating something and you're offering ex uh, exemptions yeah. from it, is it really then more of a recommendation than it is a mandate? Right. Well, no. Yeah. In practice, I think that's what it's amounting to okay. effectively. Right. But um, but I would actually say, you know, as we're saying in this document, you shouldn't be mandating it at all, even right. with all of those right. caveats, uh, all those exceptions, because actually a better way to go would be rather than mandating it, if you as an institution are judging that it's something that's that important for the common good, for the health of your community, um, the way to go about it would probably be better to recommend or encourage or even some kind of incentive, uh, perhaps, but without punitive, you know, or coercive measures that are going to significantly um, uh, overrun the, the informed consent process uh, or, or interfere with that informed consent process. So, yeah, I mean, we're not here speaking against any form whatsoever of encouragement or incentives or, or or that sort of thing, we're, we're sort of laser focused on just simply saying you shouldn't require it um, as, as you know, because that by its nature is something that heavily, heavily conditions somebody's ability to make a truly informed consent, you know, in, in this kind of situation. So we're not ruling out recommendations or incentives, but we want to be careful about, um, you know, how, how that happens. And we definitely don't want um, to be requiring it. Okay. And that leads us, I think, nicely into the fifth and final point from our statement, which says this, recognizing the importance of public health, institutions that grant an exemption may require that recipients restrict their interpersonal interactions, that these restrictions should be the least burdensome possible. John, what does that mean? Right. So this is actually, in a certain sense, it's like a sub point under number four, because it's mm -hmm. also presuming that an institution has gone ahead and mandated it anyway, um, when we said <laughs> yeah. they shouldn't. But the point here is that there is a public health good, and that that is valid for the institution to consider. It's within its purview to consider the common good, um, and the, I should say the public health aspect of the common good for its population that it serves and its employees or whatever. Um, and so you know, if it is going to grant exemptions, which we say they should if they're doing a mandate, mm -hmm. um, there may be a place if the institution judges that the risks are really serious, that they could put other kinds of requirements on those who are granted a religious exemption in order to, again, serve that public health good that the university sees. But we're saying that those should be as minimal as possible. Uh, uh, they should be the least burdensome possible if you're going to require those who have a religious exemption or conscience exemption um, to, to do something like um, you know, uh, let's say uh, social distancing or something like that, you know, you want to choose whatever that means is you want to make the least burdensome possible um, in accordance with your judgment of the severity of the, the dangers to the common good. Very well stated. So that's, that is our statement. Again, it's a very brief one and one that's very accessible to people. John, what uh, final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? 
Well, um, I guess well, one, one first practical point I would say um, to the, the religious exemption question kind of you had asked earlier and conscience and the relation between the two. I mean, we actually have just put up on our website a, a resource that people uh, may find helpful, which actually lays out uh, Catholic Church teaching on um, conscience and the therapeutic proportionality in, in choosing medical interventions uh, and the uh, abortion-derived cell line question. It's essentially a one-page template letter that people could use to explain how or why they may be eligible for a religious exemption uh, based on their conscience assessment, um, even though the Catholic Church doesn't explicitly prohibit the use of the vaccine, because uh, this is an issue that has come up um, uh, at times over the years. But uh, at this particular moment, I think we see it as clear that an individual who um, is judging that there is a serious reason to oppose the, the use of the vaccines in his or her personal decision um, does have a space for a religious exemption as a Catholic, even though the Catholic Church doesn't explicitly say that they have to refuse it because the church gives such importance to the role of conscience. And that's what our document is, is basically saying. Here's how and why, what the church teaches uh, about conscience and about these other principles that inform a Catholic's conscience um, that may lead certain individuals to want to uh, and to rightly object to the use of the vaccine on grounds of conscience as a Catholic, which um, may or may not, depending on the legal definition <laughs> uh, or the, the particular institution's definition of a religious exemption, may or may not fulfill that institution's requirement for religious exemption, but certainly um, could be something that they might use to in in appealing for or requesting uh, a religious exemption. Again, we can't we can't say whether or not it will actually be granted or what value it would have, but it's a resource that uh, lays out the church's teachings there. So that was that's a, just a practical point I wanted to make um, in, in the last space here. And I guess as a, a broader reflection, I would say, <clears throat> you know, I think we are maybe a big takeaway on all, all of this is that we we should really be clear that a lack of information, you know, is is not grounds to say, well, I should just, you know, go ahead and do this medical treatment because I don't have information. You know, I think a lot of people are in a situation where they're going to be confused. They still are confused. They're getting conflicting information. And they're also going to be feeling pressures. They're already feeling social pressures or other kinds of pressures, um, whether it's from family or whether it's from uh, social media <laughs> or you name it, you know, that we don't make sound ethical decisions based on pressure and insufficient information. So when we feel that we don't have, if you as an individual feel you don't have enough information to make your decision, um, you should feel confident that you don't have to go ahead with, with, your, with that medical procedure. I mean, if you are not in conscience sufficiently convinced um, of the benefits or, or of the, uh, the lack of you know, risks uh, adequate in your proportionality judgment, you, you really don't have to go ahead with it um, you know, if you don't feel that you have sufficient information. So I, maybe that's the, the, the point. Take um, solace in the fact that reason also <laughs> doesn't require us to act on a lack of information um, when there's not an urgent need to do so. Um, so, yeah. And oh, and maybe even bigger than that, you know, trust. I think we have big trust issues here. And this maybe pulls together the lack of information issue or the conflicting information issue with the mandate issue. Because I think um, we're actually running some serious risks. You know, anybody who's mandating the vaccine or considering doing it, um, running some very serious risks 
about more seriously and permanently compromising the trust that people have in our public health authorities uh, and in our institutions when people see that they're being coerced into doing something when the information is not clear or is conflicting um, and, and they're not being left that space to make their judgment, they're going to reasonably become concerned at a minimum, if not suspicious, uh, about what's going on here. I mean, why are we being required to do this um, when there's still evidently so much that we don't know? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying whether that's right, whether that's wrong right now. I'm just saying uh, it's a natural and reasonable human response to say, why all this pressure when everything is so unclear? Um, and, and so that does not foster trust. In fact, it fosters distrust. <laughs> and if you if you continue to foment uh, this kind of distrust, mm, the more we start mandating things, uh, the more we start mandating these kinds of medical interventions, and you know people are increasingly aware of the the suppression of information that's happening, the less people are going to trust even legitimate sources. <laughs> that's where I'm you know trying to go with this. Is you know it's like people. Um, may begin to have reasonable doubts about even those reliable sources because they no longer uh, have a clear way of distinguishing and they're seeing that um, you know that, that they are not being respected, that their decision-making and their um, right to have appropriate information is not being respected and they're gonna stop giving their trust. And that's gonna have serious consequences, I think, um, for, for public health generally, for doctor-patient relationships. And I don't wanna see that happen. <laughs> I wanna see us build trust. I wanna see us you know, strengthen communities. Um, and so within universities, again, or I would you know, come back to that point right now, right here, we're coming up to the fall semester and universities are mandating these vaccines for, for groups that clearly are not at high risk and uh, that are apparently um, at higher risks of certain serious adverse events now. Uh, and and why um, you know that is not fostering trust. Uh, if you if you want to you know encourage people to to do what you think is the right thing, uh, you're the institution. You think that's the right thing to do. You want to encourage people to do that. Okay, but when you mandate it, you're taking a big step uh, that can have serious long term trust consequences. So I think that's uh, my final. <laughs> Thoughts for the, for the day. Very, very, very well stated. So once again, the NCB statement, NCBC statement on COVID-19 vaccine mandates, as well as the resources that John just mentioned, uh, are available on our homepage, ncbcenter.org. And you can scroll down to the section, important recent postings, and they'll be right there. I'll also put, them, uh, put links to them in the show notes as well. John D. Camillo, thank you for joining me once again on Bioethics on Air, and I can't wait to have you on again. My pleasure, Joe. Take care. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, 
and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.